This is increment 173 of We See Jesus, and it's Hebrews 2020, a study of Hebrews, that heavenly homily written by a teaching and exhorting pastor, not only for first century viewers and listeners, but for 21st century listeners and hopefully people who apply this doctrine. Last time we started with the doctrine of human being as microcosm and I got the sense that it was enough at the end of that message. So I'm going to continue with a seamless continuation of the doctrine. We'll call it the doctrine of human being as microcosm or mini universe we could say and it'll be part two today and I want to add some more fuel to the fire as it were to keep this thing burning and the result of this I think is going to be the scaffolding for a doctrine that will be a unique approach and maybe even the most important approach to what I call the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ which is one of the most comforting doctrines we could have in our life and in our soul to save our souls. So, Father, we thank you for this, the tracks you've put us on to follow. We thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ is a forerunner and he has entered already for us into a, an indescribable region beyond the second veil. He's there as a pioneer for us. He's there as our forerunner, and he is our hope. And we thank you, Father, that that hope is also in us and that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. We pray, therefore, that you'll manifest him in this message so that he can be magnified in the bodies of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter's reference to believing in Jesus Christ, though we don't see him in 1 Peter 1.8, is no doubt made in recollection of Jesus' words to Thomas in John 20, 29. Jesus said to Thomas, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Happy are those, notice the reference here to joy, happy are those who believe without seeing. Believing without seeing results in the peace and joy that are characteristics of the kingdom of God within us. Romans 14, 17, Romans 15, 13. And that is the solution to the apparent contradiction between 1 Peter 1, 8, and we want to hit that right now, an apparent contradiction between 1 Peter 1, 8, which says we aren't seeing Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 2.9, which says, we see Jesus. Is there a contradiction? I don't think so. Is there a contradiction? Only apparently. We are not seeing him as Thomas did with the eyes in his head, viewing Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection. And in Luke, Jesus said, look at me, touch me, handle me, and see that I'm not a ghost, a, fan 
a fantasy of your imagination. I am flesh and bone. And so we are not seeing Thomas, seeing as Thomas did with the eyes. We're going to talk about two Thomases today, incidentally. And I'll say hi to a third Thomas. Hi, Tom, up there in Massachusetts. We're not seeing him as Thomas did with the eyes in his head, viewing Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection. Nor are we seeing him yet in his glorious apocalypse when every eye will see him, when he will be universally revealed. For when we see him as he is in 1 John 3, 2, in that final apocalypse, we shall be like him. For that will be the beatific vision, which will be entirely transformative. Now, though we have not seen Jesus as Thomas and the other, the other apostles saw him, we have been given equally precious faith with those apostles, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, and that faith is more valuable than gold in 1 Peter 1.7. Because the most precious and blessed faith is not of those who have believed while seeing or because they saw with the eyes in their head, but of those who believe while not seeing him in that way. But we see Jesus, says Hebrews 2.9. We see Jesus, says the Hebrews author. There is no contradiction here because the PT is speaking of an intellective seeing, a seeing with the eyes of the heart, as Ephesians 1.18 puts it. It is a seeing of the mind's eye, as we call it in modern times. It is still a seeing eye, and it's still created by God in Proverbs 20 and verse 12, and it's a more valuable seeing even than the seeing with our eyes, the orbs in our cranium with their optic nerves. Contrary to a contradiction here, there is a correlation between Peter and the PT. And this brings it to our, our recollection, the middle term, as it's called, in Aristotelian rhetoric and Thomist dialectical method. The second Thomas I want to talk about is Thomas Aquinas, of course. Thomas Aquinas. He had a method, a dialectical rhetorical method. And it seems that Thomas would make a declaration of something or ask a question of something and then say, for example, is God the living God? And he would say, God is the living God. And then he would ask his students, doctoral students, perhaps at the University of Paris or wherever it was, to voice objections to it, which he would entertain in class. And so they would give him objections. Sometimes there'd be one or two, two questions. Sometimes there would be five or six or up to 12 objections. He would then propose an on the contrary, and then he would say, I answer that. And then after his answer, he would then 
knock off all these objections and reply to every one of those objections. So what you were left with, a pretty serious conclusion on the matter that began. Yes, God is a living God, for example. So let's get into some Thomist, Thomist method. When we make an adjective out of Thomas, we have Thomist. And there's a method that he used. Now, when I read Summa Theologica, or if the Greek, for, the Greek is theologia, when I read that, the value of it to me was not so much doctrinal as it was methodical, the method he used to think. And it was, to me, it correlated with Lonergan's cognitive theory and with critical realism and a lot of other modern concepts. So it really transformed my study of the scripture. But so, so by the method of Thomas Aquinas, which he deployed throughout Summa Theologica, first he asks a question. Now, let's go to one of the questions. Question 18, Article 3, Part 1, in Volume 1 of his Summa Theologica. And the question is whether life is properly attributed to God. Is life properly attributed to God? So we would ask it this way. Is God the living God? Is God, does God have the attribute of life? And that's his question. So he says, this is going to be our theme today, students, whether life is properly attributed to God. Now, I want you students to say no and tell me why in your own intelligent objective and objections. Even though you believe one way or another, you may believe that he is life, but I want you to present in a debate form, a kind of a debater, debater's forum, your objection to that, why, he, why life should not be attributed to God. For example, you might object and say, well, God is immutable, and immutable means unchangeable, and life is changeable and mutable, so no, God isn't a living God, etc. You might go on that way. But then the second thing that, so the second thing that Thomas Aquinas did was he entered objections. In this case, in this question 18, Article 3, Part 1, he lodged, he allowed for three objections. I'm sure students gave objections that were silly or unreasonable or an intel, unintelligent. He only took on intelligent and reasonable objections. And so he entered these objections. In this case, there were three. The third thing he did in his method after proposing the question, entering objections, he says in every case he has a slot that he calls on the contrary, in which he makes a statement that contradicts the objections. So the objections are lodged, and then he says on the contrary. In the case of question 18, article 3, part 1, he wrote this, on the contrary, and he gives a verse here. On the contrary, it is said, and then he quotes Psalm LXXXIII in Roman numerals, and that's maddening, but that would be 83.3. My heart and my flesh have rejoiced in the living God. So 
Contrary to your objections, students, the Bible calls him the living God. My heart and my flesh have rejoiced in the living God. Why would God not have life attributed to him if he was called the living God in Scripture? Now, we could surely add some lower blade data to this data to Thomas, and we could say, on the contrary, Hebrews 3.12 says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. We could add that and say, Why would he be called the living God if life isn't attributed to God? And in Hebrews 9.13-14, to 14, we find the following a fortiori. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, that means as the Lamb of God, purify your conscience from dead works so that you may serve the living God. So we would say, on the contrary to your objections, you're objecting that God has life attributed to him. Why is he called the living God in Hebrews 9.14? Then the fourth thing that Aquinas did in his rhetorical method, his dialectical method, which in Lonergan became a cognitive theory or a cognition, a way of cognition. Fourthly, Aquinas has his own answer, which he invariably introduces with the introductory phrase, I answer that and this put him in the position of having to make a judgment call and therefore to make a conclusion to draw inferences and make a conclusion and so in this case he begins with I answer that quote life is in the highest degree properly in God and so what he does is he said he not only takes the answer that Yes, life is attributed to God, but life in a higher degree than we imagine is attributed to God. Life is an attribute of God, but in a higher integration than we know or that we imagine. So, again, in his I answer that, he says, life in the highest degree, or life is in the highest degree properly attributed to to God, or properly in God. The exact way that it's put in, in the translation is this. I answer that life is in the highest degree properly in God. After three paragraphs in which he expands upon that answer, he concluded by citing Aristotle, whom he calls, throughout Summa, he calls him the philosopher. He wrote, such is God, and hence in him principally is life. From this, the philosopher in concludes in Metaphysics 12.51, after showing God to be intelligent, that God has life most perfect and eternal, since his intellect is most perfect and always in act. Fifthly, then, after concluding with this quote from the philosopher Aristotle, who believed God to be intelligent and believed God to be living, then, fifthly, what Aquinas does in his method 
is he replies to the three objections. He kind of knocks them off and flicks them away, as it were. He replies to the three objections, which leads to his virtually unconditioned judgment on the matter in the question, therefore, whether life is properly attributed to God, the answer is unequivocally, yes, life is attributable to God. See what he's done there? He's done the similar thing that we do when we pose a question, we come to an insight, we reflect upon the insight and martial evidence, we ask a question for reflection, we come to a judgment, and then we take all objections on, and then having reduced all objections to nothing, to a, an absurdity, we then have a firm conclusion. Even from there, we can deliberate and say, given that judgment, what kind of person should I be? What kind of individual ought I to be in this life? And that deliberation is also has the potential to transform our lives. Now, we do similarly, therefore, when we ask a question and answer it and then entertain objections, reflect, and amass evidence, come to a judgment or a conclusion again. This method of cognition oftentimes leads to a middle term, that which is called by some people the golden mean, M-E-A-N, the golden middle term, between two propositions. In today's increment, we can ask, do we see Jesus? And further, we could say, do we see Jesus as a microcosm of the universe? Do we see in him all things in the heavens and earth reconciled, rectified, reintegrated, transformed, transfigured? But let's reduce it. We would say... Do we see Jesus? And then we would say the objection. We would lodge an objection. And the objector this time can go to the scripture and take Peter as an authoritative source and say, no, we don't see Jesus because... In 1 Peter 1.8, it says, you have not seen him. Not only that, second objection, Peter says, though not seeing him. Both are from 1 Peter 1.8. But then we would come back with this and say, on the contrary, it is said, Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made inferior to the angels for a little while so that by the grace of God, or as we've seen in our alternate translation, so that far from God, he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So we do see Jesus. So on the contrary, we do see Jesus. But in I answer... If I were to have the same segment called I answer, then I would expand on our contrary thesis and say we see Jesus with a perception that is higher than the perception of the seeing of the eyes in our head. I would say that we see Jesus 
with a perception that is mental or intellective or intellectual and spiritual, pneumatikos. In our reply to the two objections, this is what I would do then, reply to objection one. We concede that we haven't seen Jesus as Thomas and the other apostles saw him with the physical orbs in their head fitted with optic nerves as they also heard him and even touched him with their hands and heard him with their ears. But we do see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, as Paul calls them in Ephesians 1.18. They are described that way as he is portrayed for us by the Holy Spirit to our human spirit, we therefore see him. And as his image is seen in the mirror of the word, maybe obscurely, but nevertheless seen. And we would reply to objection two by saying that though we concede that we are not now seeing Jesus as we will see him in his second appearance, that again we are seeing him with the seeing eye, which is the intellective capacity created by the Lord. For as it says in Proverbs 20, verse 12, this seeing eye was made by the Lord. We may even conclude that as Hebrews eleven three says, and I would add this to my reply to the objection, through faith we perceive, and then we would see the word noeo, perceive, which is a kind of seeing, noeo. Through faith, we perceive or see that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made of things that are visible or has been made of things that are not visible. Let's say that again. Through faith, Hebrews 11.3, we perceive, which is a way of seeing, that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen has been made of things that are not visible. In the same way, therefore, that we see or understand that the things that we see are made of the invisible, of invisible agencies, in the same way, through faith, we perceive or see Jesus. So there is a seeing of faith. This is not out of sync with Hebrews 11.27, also to use Hebrews in our reply to that objection. This isn't out of sync with Hebrews 11.27, in which it says that Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. So when we ask if we are not seeing Jesus Christ just now, according to 1 Peter 1.7b-8, but we see Jesus, according to Hebrews, then do we have a contradiction? The answer is, most assuredly, no. You see, we've drawn an inference, and we've made the inference into perfection, which is a judgment. So we do see Jesus. This is also arrival at a middle term or a golden mean. This kind of seeing isn't the seeing that the apostles had and that Mary Magdalene had and that other witnesses had of Jesus before his ascension and that Paul had 
in, on the road to Damascus. This is not seeing in that way. Nor is it the seeing that will be the seeing of all people when he's universally revealed and brings salvation to those who are waiting for him, which is all of creation. But it's, an, it's a middle term. It's an intermediary way of seeing. While he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father as our great archpriest, we see him with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of the human spirit, with the eyes of our soul. And that seeing is the seeing of faith, a very valuable kind of seeing that is even more valuable than the sight of our eyes in this world. So, our little dialectic has revealed that there is a kind of perception and therefore a kind of seeing that is congenial with faith. That's our middle term between a phantasm and a perfectly clear beatific vision. So it's by this kind of perception and not merely by a physical eyesight that we see Jesus. Now, seeing him, which Paul uses a metaphor for this. Paul uses a metaphor for seeing him in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we've often alluded to. Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. When we see him in the beatific vision, we will be fully transformed into his image for now in the intermediary seeing of faith as we continue in the word and receive the word into our stream of consciousness and into our souls and into our hearts we are transformed from one tiny increment of glory to the next that's why I call every one of our teachings in Hebrews another increment another opportunity to be transformed to another increment of glory. It's incremental. It isn't something people notice. They don't see an aura around you all of a sudden. It's incremental. It is imperceptible gains being made each time we listen to and receive and mix faith with and unite our faith with the word of God. When we see him in the beatific vision, the transformation will be complete and we will be conformed completely into the image of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we will be deity, but it does mean that we will remarkably reflect his person in a way that's extraordinary. And so, seeing him, or gazing as in a glass at his image as shown by the Holy Spirit in the scripture. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another as by the spirit of the Lord. In this transformation, we rejoice with a joy that is filled with glory. Now we're back to the glory filling the temple. And as Moses couldn't enter, and as the, the Old Testament priest, the Levitical priest could no longer stand to minister, so when the joy of the Lord, the glory-filled joy, fills our temple, there's no room for that which the old-timers used to call concupiscence, narcissistic self-loathing, all the stuff that makes for, well, a disintegration of the person and the personality and the soul today. And so 
filled with glory. A joy that is filled with glory. Filled with glory in 1 Peter 1.8 is taken from the two passages we cited at the beginning. 1 Peter takes that. Peter takes that in 1 Peter 1.8 from the cloud of God's glory filling the tent in the wilderness so that Moses could not enter. And then when the glory of the Lord filled the temple of Solomon so that the Levitical priests could not stand to minister before the face of the cloud. That's what Peter's talking about. Our joy and our joyous hope are filled with the glory of Jesus, whom we see crowned with hmm, glory and honor. He has the honor of our great archpriest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This glory has also so filled us up that the Levitical priesthood is left outside. And that's the whole point of Hebrews. Christ in us is not only the hope of glory. He is the glory for which we hope. According to Hebrews 2, 9 to 14a, let's consider this in the light of what I've been saying of humanity or a human being as a microcosm of the universe, as a microcosm, a mini-universe Let's remember our translation from Hebrews 2.9 to 14a. But we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels, for a little while. That means that not only for a little while, when Jesus ascends to heaven and to the right hand of his Father, he is above angels. Angels are subordinate to him. So that which he integrates in himself includes the angelic community he's the head of all things in heavens and earth and therefore Jesus human body is a microcosm of the renewed new heavens and a new earth and I'm praying that you get ahas from that by the Holy Spirit because I can't quite articulate it as I ought to yet but once again Hebrews 2 9 to 14 a we see Jesus who was made inferior to the angels for a little while so that by so that far from God he would taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death for in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation complete through suffering. For both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one, because of which he, Jesus the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, the sanctified, brothers and sisters, his siblings, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same. A partaker of the same. In his incarnation, he became a partaker of blood and flesh. He became flesh. He became all that is sublated and integrated into blood and flesh. He embodied in himself all created reality, who himself was already 
the embodiment of all uncreated reality. The tabernacle in heaven, the true tent, has been entered by Jesus. You see, this circles back to Hebrews 6.20, which launches us into the central expository or exp exposition of Hebrews and then to the central and most significant exhortation in Hebrews. The exposition, 7.1 to 10.18, the exhortation, 10.19 through 39. So, the tabernacle in heaven, which is the true tent, has been entered by Jesus, and therefore the tent has been filled with the glory of the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priests cannot enter. They cannot stand to minister there, but you can. And that's the point. For Jesus has entered there as a forerunner for us, prodromos, which we will entertain in our next increment. He is there as our hope, and our faith is the substance of hoped-for things. Jesus is there as our hope, and faith is the assurance of hoped-for things. We can enter with boldness because our access road as Hebrews 10.20 describes it, was paved in Jesus' blood. And that road passes right through the curtain, which is his flesh, his torn body. Moreover, as a royal priesthood, we've been washed in his blood, and our bodies have been cleansed with the pure water of the word and the spirit, which I think is an analogy to the washing of the bodies of the priests before they enter their ministry. It's an analogy to it. We too are priests, but we are a priesthood, a royal priesthood in union with Christ, not a Levitical type priesthood. You can enter into the Holy of Holies because you are also a microcosm, a mini universe of, proportionate, of the proportionate being. You are a harbinger of the indwelling of the triune God in all of creation, the result of the universal salvific significance of Jesus' incarnation, his life lived in total obedience to God, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. So we've begun. What have I done in these last two increments? We have begun construction on a doctrine of human being as a microcosm or a human being as a mini universe. Now maybe this doctrine, and in fact I can assure you this doctrine, hasn't fully emerged from phantasm to a clear verbum or a clear doctrine. But perhaps it's on the way. And perhaps along the way you've had many aha moments as we like to call them, as people like to call them, many insights have popped in your brain and maybe phantasms have given rise to your imagination of Jesus Christ comprising all things which is God's mystery and the mystery of God's will so I gladly hand this increment over to the Holy Spirit of grace as our master teacher and I trust that he will continue to develop the idea until it is totally clear to you and until it results in the glory of Jesus Christ 
and in a glory-filled joy for you. Happy are you if you're poor in spirit, because the poor in spirit are those to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. And what is the kingdom of heaven? But the experience of glory-filled joy, imperturbable peace, and the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, and peace. These are all the things I wish for you. These are all the things I pray for you. These are all the things I expect for you. And Father, I thank you for another opportunity to just proclaim your word, the word of truth, and to look at it in a way we've never looked at it before quite, so that through this method, this method of phantasm and of proceeding from obscurity to clarity, your Holy Spirit can take the word and bring to bear upon all who hear this message a kind of joy that's indescribable, a kind of joy that's already filled with the glory that will one day fill the universe of proportionate being, that will one day be the hallmark of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness finally dwells perfectly at home. And we thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your providence. Thank you that you are Yahweh Yirah, God who provides, and that you have provided throughout the time of our dispersion for the communication of message after message after message so that you carry us through these times with your grace, with your mercy, with your unconditional, unrestricted love. And we thank you in Jesus' name for it. Amen.